I wonder if you can uh, remember a moment in your life when things, when people, when relationships, a situation has brought you to your lowest point. What's your lowest point? And at that moment, did you pray? And if you did, how did you pray? What did you pray? See, what we have here, look down, Habakkuk 3, uh, it's an appropriate response of God's people, whatever the circumstances, however bad things get. It is, as I've titled this, the prayer, the righteous pray. Now, of course, we might get tempted to think, oh, woe is me, things are so tough, there's struggles. But uh, are our struggles anywhere near the people of God's, Judah's, in this book? Because I guess none of us here are facing uh, a conquering army. A, a, a group of people coming, they are coming, who will absolutely destroy and pillage our property. They will kill our loved ones. They will rape a nation and they will humiliate beyond measure. See, Babylon is coming. That's what we've been looking at these last few weeks. As an instrument of God's justice... Against God's people, Judah. And they are represented by Habakkuk. They're facing a judgment that they didn't expect, but they all deserve, as we all do. And this judgment will utterly, utterly humiliate them. And so the chapter so far of being a Habakkuk is actually uniquely as a prophet calling back to God, questioning God. And God's response is to show that, hey, as we saw last week, chapter 2, verses 6 through to the end, it is God's response to Habakkuk saying, ah, justice will come. Yes, not only to you, but also to Babylon. But even facing these circumstances, even knowing the atrocities that are about to come, look at this prayer. Do you pray like this? Look at your prayers in the dark times of your life and just see, is there any difference? Let's learn from God's word. Let's, let's change, I guess, if we need to. But firstly, note, I, I, this is a strange, did you note Ali made a mistake as you read? Did anyone spot it? I'm not being to be cruel here. I love you, brother. But um, in a sense, he left out what is scripture. On Shigianoth at the beginning. And what else at the end? For the director of music on my stringed instruments. Unlike our titles in some of uh, in our translation above the paragraphs, this is scripture. Like in the Psalms, the, the little notations before many of the Psalms is scripture. And that tells us that this is a song as well. Firstly, we see because of that note at the end, it's for the director of music on stringed instruments. Like the psalm, this prayer is intended to be read and sung by the people of God as they gather to worship. But also it shows us there will be a need for God's people to sing and pray these words. Because God knew over time that there will be people like you and me going through difficult stuff. You'll need this song. I need this song. You need to sing and pray these words. Second musical note, it's a funny one, and I don't know if I could pronounce it right, but verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigianos. Now, scholars agree that Shigianos seems to be the name, the title 
of a piece of music. Probably a lot better than everything that happened last night at Eurovision. We have no record, though, of the music to this prayer. Oh, we have the words, but the music does not survive time. And just like the Psalms, the words survived. But the art, the music that has died, it accompanied those words for a season. It was beautiful for its time. But the words, they are the vehicle of truth. And that's what matters to God and should matter to us more than anything else. Well, of course, music is a lovely gift from God, given to accompany the words, but it's given so that they might pierce our hearts for that time. The words of truth are priority. Third musical thing, very quickly. Uh, It's a structural point, but I I thought I'd throw it out now so I don't have to mention it. Um, In our translations, in this translation, it doesn't really appear... But in the old translations, a little word, salah, S-E-L-A-H, used to appear, and it should be here. It's a mistake of the translation. At the end of verse 3, the end of verse 9, and the end of verse 13. Now, what that does, and you'll see it in the Psalms as well sometimes, it's essentially saying, this is like the chorus, the refrain of the song. And it would usually put it at the first one, Which is the chorus? And that would be verse 3. Look down at verse 3. And many scholars would say, that's the chorus. That's the bit that you need to repeat again and again. And so you do it at the end of verse 9 and also at the verse 30. Don't get bogged down about it, but essentially the structure looks like this. Introduction, verse 1. Chorus or refrain, verse 2. And then you get verse 3 to 8. That's like the first verse. And then you get to verse 9. And you would repeat the chorus of verse 2. And then you go through verse 9 to 12, followed by a chorus, verse 13, 15, followed by a chorus. Okay? 16 to 19, there's a change in the Hebrew, the language. Uh, and there, it kind of shows us that's the end. That's like the concluding point. Okay? So you get the structure. Let's dig deeper, though, if we can. Because this is a model of prayer in dark times. Can I just remind you of the context Habakkuk, okay, this prophet, he stood on the ramparts of the city. We see back in chapter 2. He's looking on the horizon for dust. Because dust tells him the nation of Babylon are coming. We know they came. This is anticipatory. This is waiting for that coming. And you can imagine... Babylon are coming. And go to the British Museum. It's like a third floor. You can see the kind of destruction of the Babylonian nation. They destroyed, humiliated nations with their forces. Can you imagine Habakkuk standing there? Looking out for the dust. He knows they are coming. He knows this is going to be the worst ever And yet this is the prayer he prays. This is the prayer, the righteous prayer. And Habakkuk, I guess, is showing us here, going back to chapter 2, verse 4, which I think is so central to this whole book, that this is the first step in living by faith. It begins by praying by faith, which is what he does here. Let's see what that looks like. First point, first main point, Habakkuk honestly approaches God in prayer. It's very down to earth, isn't he? 
Habakkuk's really just being so real with God. Are you like this? Look at verse 2. Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Literally, I fear your work, God. It's incredibly honest, isn't he? What work or deeds does he fear? Well, literally, it's the work, literally, the Hebrew goes, it's the work you're about to work. Back in chapter 1, verse 5, we know what that is. God says, I'm going to do a work in your days. What is it? He's going to send the Babylonians in judgment against his own people. And it's a massive work then, isn't it? And so Habakkuk here is utterly approaching God with this, this complete honesty. He fears God for who he is, but he comes with his present dilemma. I stand in awe of your deeds. I stand in fear of the work that you're about to work. I wonder, do you come to God with such honesty in your prayers? I think so many of us are afraid to, to pray like this. I wonder if we pray, you know, God, what you're doing in my life right now scares me. And I don't understand. Do you pray like that? Do you see the issue here, though? Uh, I guess sometimes we think praying in faith, praying by faith, means that we, if we fear, then we have no faith. As a result, I guess we rarely bring our biggest fears to God. By contrast, what Habakkuk is doing here and showing us here is that, that we must have faith to faithfully tell God all of our fears. I guess perhaps it's just that stiff upper lip Englishness of us that stops us from being really honest. I wonder if you've you've heard a child pray recently, you might learn a few things from them. They're super honest. When children pray, you see, they don't often withhold their fears. And there's different kind of spectrums of kids. I won't embarrass mine here, but, you know, let's just, you know, kind of, we'll go one end of the spectrum. You've got the kind of, the one who thinks he's completely indestructible. And then you've got the worrier on the other end of the spectrum. And the one that thinks he's a winner in everything will just pray, oh God, please, I don't come second in my maths test this week, you know, or God, please don't come second as I run the Junior Olympics. You know, so confident, so, you know, he's a winner. And then you get the worrier who will just pray for minutes about what their friends think of them. About how they look. About their work and fitting in. Because those things frighten them. I remember sometimes sitting there listening to the boys praying. And parents, you will understand this. And boys, I'm not going to embarrass you. But sometimes you just want your kids to stop praying. Because it makes them sad and it hurts as you hear their fears. You feel helpless to do anything to stop those fears. But you see, it is so perfectly right. Who else do you turn to? When you fear the great fear of God working in your life, suddenly, where do you turn? Habakkuk shows us. You come back to him, you come back to God. Habakkuk honestly approaches God in prayer. That honesty continues in the, the repeated frame of the... But look at halfway through verse 2. Repeat them in our day, he says. 
In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. And here Habakkuk is saying, he appeals to God, renew, repeat, make known. But what? Now, a simple reading kind of suggests that Habakkuk is appealing to God to repeat his deeds in his time. Now, that's frightening. Because it includes judgment. But it's also including of mercy, as we'll see. Because Habakkuk has in mind God's deeds, his saving work for his people. The appeal is honest. It could even be a subtle questioning and and protest to God against the coming judgment. But it's clear Habakkuk desires a renewal, a present knowing of God's almighty saving power. Do you see why this verse is so important? It's the repeat going through the structure. Uh, This verse acts as a summary statement of the message, essentially of the whole book, especially in that last phrase, in wrath. Remember mercy. See, Habakkuk desires for God's work to be repeated, not only in his justice, but in his mercy, in his kindness too. It's sometimes taught that eternity will be spent with God in heaven or without God in hell. I can understand why it's said like that. But here we're reminded that God's character is made known both in his loving mercy but also in his just wrath. I do hope you realise that God will be fully present in hell. In his justice. In his wrath. In heaven only in his undeserved love and mercy. Which is why we pray for those around us, colleagues and neighbours. Heavenly Father, we pray in your just wrath towards that person. Please help me to show them the mercy, the undeserved love that you have poured out in our time. Help me make the salvation available through Christ known to that person. In wrath, remember mercy. So Habakkuk honestly approaches God in prayer. Uh, Can I encourage you, before you go to bed tonight, why don't you do the same? Secondly, Habakkuk remembers God to stimulate his prayers. I wonder, does that differ from your prayer and my prayers? Do you see what Habakkuk does here? He, he begins his prayer, he introduces it with an appeal. In wrath, remember mercy. But then he launches, not into what uh, sadly characterises my prayers, it's just the list of requests, or the kind of the melancholic outpourings of my heart, you know, your hearts. Suddenly, no, in verse 3, what does he do? Look down, verse 3, following. You get 13 verses exclusively about God. One commentator brilliantly asked, and I thought it was so clever, he says, does this disappoint you? Do you think that that would really stimulate your prayers? Because it doesn't come naturally, does it? But, but the way we think about God will affect how we pray to God. 
uh, verse 33 to verse, uh, through to verse 15, they're here essentially to blow our minds about God. See, Habakkuk shows us that to pray in faith, we need to have an understanding of God that essentially makes him huge, but then makes us tiny. That declares him as the saviour who provides mercy and demotes us to being those absolutely desperate and needy for his salvation. This is the answer to his fear and trembling in verse 2. Habakkuk's prayers need to be more about the God who can take away those fears and less about him and the person who has allowed those fears to take hold. Uh, verses 3 to 15, they're, they're, they're structured in two parts. Just get your eyes down. You'll see, hopefully, notice the language. Look at the tenses used. Verse 3 to 7 is uh, third person, yeah? Habakkuk refers to God as he and his power, his glory. So on, you see that? And then you get a change, verse 8 to verse 15. Habakkuk addresses, Habakkuk addresses God in the second person. You, your wrath. Now you think that's a bit boring, you know, a bit of literary stuff, you know, there. There's a change from speaking of God there to speaking of God in verses 8 to 15. Now, I haven't got time to go into details, but there are numerous allusions there of God's mighty delivering work in the Exodus and other mighty works and appearances of God. But what Habakkuk is doing is not a detailed essay. He's praying He's honestly pouring out his heart to God in wonderful, beautiful poetry. And there's nuance in poetry, isn't there? I can't go into every detail, but let's just get a picture of what Habakkuk prays. And again, question our own praying as a result. Look how person he gets in the shift of language. So firstly, in verse 3 to 7, he's asking this question. What happens when God comes? And in the second section, verse 8 to 15, he's saying why it is that God comes. So what happens when God comes? Well, the answer is scary. He disturbs and he terrifies. I wonder how you characterise God. Look at verse 3 and 4. Just cast your eyes down. You'll see there God is bright. And don't underestimate this because of poetry and kind of the hyperbole here. That's the norm, okay? Look at the magnitude of God's brightness. What does that indicate? His purity and his power. He disturbs, secondly, because look at verse 5. He's dangerous. Pestilence and plague go before him. That is, he controls those things in nature. They are tools. As God opens his toolbox and thinks, I've got to judge this nation, he brings out these things. Not the demigods the Babylonians believed in. So when God comes, you see, verse 3 to 4 is bright, verse 5 he's dangerous, and verse 6 and 7 summarise that he is terrifying. The presence of God here invokes earthquakes, nations tremble, mountains crumble. You can see that the whole way through salvation history. Perhaps Habakkuk's last description of God sums up 
everything, all that goes before. It just helps understand the magnitude of God. His ways are eternal. Look at verse 7, the end there. He marches on forever. Now we can't grasp that fully, but it's big, isn't it? It's powerful, it's terrifying. And it should stimulate our our prayerful dependence on God. So so secondly, let's go to that second half, verse 8 to 15. The question is, why it is that God comes? And look at verse 8. The question there is really helpful. Were you angry with the rivers, Lord? Strange question. Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode your horses and your chariots to victory? Answer, no. God was not angry at the rivers or the sea. Now, the reason he nearly tears the world apart here, which is what you see in verses 9 to 12, is because he is merciful and will save his people. Verse 13. Verse 13, you came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. See, God doesn't bring his wrath on the rivers of his creation but against the rivals of his people. So you see, what what Habakkuk is showing is that God comes in his majesty and his power, and he has in the past controlling rivers, parting seas, but for one purpose, to bring wrath against his rivals and mercy to his faithful people. Habakkuk remembers God to stimulate his prayer. You see what Habakkuk said? He's given us 13 verses to make this point. To be honest, one would have been enough. It's difficult to see it in our translation, but what he's doing here with the Hebrew and the poetry there, he's being really playful at times. Hebrew scholars all point to the fact that you know, Habakkuk is, is such overwhelmed with joy as he remembers God's coming in his majesty and power to deliver his people. It's joyful. Because Habakkuk is describing God. Oh yes, it is serious as well though. God is shown to be the all-powerful warrior who destroys anything in order to save his people. That sentence would be enough, but Habakkuk is so excited and delighted in his God. Hopefully we can catch up some of his joy here. And perhaps, if you're anything like me, you might struggle in your prayer life because you lack joy in God and his nature and his character. I hope you realise there's no kind of like injection you can have or pill that you can have. That's not going to change overnight. And it won't change easily. But it begins, look how it begins. It begins with honest prayer. Prayer that pours out truth about God and his nature revealed in his deeds for us. Where do we find that truth? Friends, it's in your hands right now. There is joy to be found here. And perhaps the joy of Habakkuk might be the stimulus we need to pray more and learn more of God's mighty works in his word. 
So last point, we've seen Habakkuk remembers God to stimulate his prayer. Last point, Habakkuk rejoices in God, his saviour. Notice another language change here. Now Habakkuk speaks in the first person about his own experience in response to what he knows about God. But look at the balance of prayer. It's all been about God up to this point. So you get 13 verses. Check your own prayers out, okay, right this moment. Think about your own prayers. Who are they about? What are they about? Habakkuk's prayer, pretty much every prayer in the Bible, you get 13 verses about God, now four verses about Habakkuk. Mathematicians, don't try and work out the proportion of that right now. Is there an imbalance, though, in your praying, as there is mine? Verse 16, again, we see the honesty. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones. My legs trembled. This isn't rejoicing. Notice that Habakkuk's first response is fear. It's fear because you've got the coming judgment of the dust in the, on the horizon. Babylon are coming. And it rem- renders Habakkuk immobile, sick at the thought, consumed with fear. Yet look what he says. I will wait patiently. I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. If you are upset and trembling, whatever your circumstance, take comfort here. It doesn't mean that you lack faith. On the contrary, it's the very evidence of faith. Habakkuk is trembling, but precisely because he believes God's word. He has faith in God's word and he is in fear because of it. Faith leads to fear. Verse 17 though. Though the fig tree does not bud and there's no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no fruit, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Saviour. Probably the best known verse of the whole of this book of Habakkuk. But the principle here is, I think, is simple. Faith may have to exist in totally destitute circumstances. I wonder, let me contemporise that verse if I may. Let me try Though the hedge funds collapse, and though there are no investors around, oh, the consultants get it as well, Sergey, bad luck. Though the NHS fails, and the education system crumbles, and though Brexit will divide and maybe bring down a nation, verse 18, yet I will rejoice. In the Lord, I will be joyful in God my Saviour. Oh, we don't know what is to come. I'm no politician. I'm no economist. I'm not going to be a prophet of doom or anything like that. I pray for the government. I don't envy their task. But the principle is simple. Whatever comes our way, whatever is my Babylon, 
And whatever is your Babylon, our Babylon, the death of a loved one, there's already cancer, crippling disease, whatever, verse 18, is still true. If you stand here in Christ today, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. And I will be joyful in God, my Saviour. Lastly, our hope, verse 19. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of the deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Now, I don't know what you face. I know what I face sometimes scares me silly, so I need to pray as we all do. Trusting in the strength of God because he's proved himself. We must allow our circumstances, sorry, we must allow ourselves out of the mire of self-pity and, and be uplifted to rejoice. I love that little phrase, is it? With feet like deer. That is just stable, but joyful. Can't stop a deer, can you? Jumping up and down. Loves it. Stable but joyful. How should we pray then? Verse 1 and 2, honesty is important, isn't it? Expressing our fears. Verse 3 to 15, filling our hearts, our minds, our vision with the God who comes to save and who has come supremely in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust him. Verse 16 to 19, taking another look at our circumstances Delighting in the joy that we know, of course, again, supremely in Christ, that no one can take from you. I'm going to end uh, now with a prayer that is a hymn. He's one of my great heroes, a man named William Cooper. Uh, He wrote this hymn in 1779. The hymn is simply a rewriting of this song, Habakkuk 3. I don't know if you know about Cooper, he was a depressed man all the way through his life. Incredibly wealthy. If you ever studied classics at university, you will still today use his translations uh, of Homer's classics, uh, the Iliad and so on. He had five serious breakdowns throughout his life. And obviously those days, uh, he, was, he was just considered mad, crazy. He was institutionalised uh, quite a lot of time throughout his life. He endured so much pain. And he wrote this hymn in probably his darkest day. Why don't you listen? Sometimes a light surprises the Christian while he sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. When comforts are declining, he grants the soul again a season of clear shining to cheer it after rain. Though vine nor fig tree neither their wanted fruit should bear. Though all the fields should wither nor flocks nor herds be there. Yet God the same abiding. His praise shall tune my voice. For while in him confiding I cannot but rejoice. Let's pray as we close. Glorious, powerful, majestic, and yet merciful God, we thank you so much for this prayer of Habakkuk 3. That begins, of course, with distress, but ends with the joyful stringed instruments.
Thank you that this has been a reminder to us that though we may face very dark days ahead of us, or maybe even enduring them now, they are for a season. Even in those dark times, help us to be steely and resolve ourselves, despite circumstances, to rejoice in all that we know of you and what you have done supremely in and through the Lord Jesus. And as we look back at the book of Habakkuk, help us to resist in a sense the Babylonian in us. May we not be the puffed up ones, but rather may we be humbled by you, striving to be the individuals and the church that you would have us be. And help us therefore, we pray, to go on living by our faith, in Jesus Christ of the new covenant established in his blood in whose glory we pray. Amen.